I'd like to begin this morning by reminding you that tonight we will resume our Sunday night rotation this month with the theme of Christ-likeness in the home. And tonight will be a roundtable discussion. A couple of weeks ago, we did an in-depth study, and tonight we will now do some application through this discussion-oriented format. And so we encourage you to be back with us tonight as we continue to emphasize the home, and in particular, this theme of Christ-likeness in the home. I also want to make you aware, it's been in the bulletin for a couple of weeks now, but next week we will have a guest speaker Kyle Butt from Apologetics Press is going to be here, and he'll be teaching our adult Bible class and presenting during our time of worship. So please make plans to join us. Kyle is one of the uh, uh, national missionaries we support. At least that's how he's categorized with his work at Apologetics Press. So we encourage you to be here to listen to some uh, powerful lessons from him next week. Also, after that morning worship, there will be a lunch for the young families in particular and a 1230 BK520, which doesn't make any sense. But at 1230, we're going to have a special session for our kids uh, that Kyle is going to do, a lesson geared towards them uh, and and some follow-up with some resource information for parents. So if you're in the young families especially, though it's not exclusive to the young families, but if you're in the young families especially, keep that on your calendar. 1230 next Sunday, we're going to have a session uh, with our kids, a lesson presented by Kyle specifically for them after a, a lunch that will be provided. So please, please be here next week as well as we have that special session with Kyle. As for today, I want to draw a close to this series we've been doing off and on since Thanksgiving called Church Words. And as I mentioned just a couple of weeks ago, our our whole objective of this series is to look at some words that only get used in the church setting and understand these words and, and remove some false doctrine tied to some of these words and comprehend these words in such a way that we can communicate them to other people. And we've looked at several different words. We've looked at words like propitiation. We've looked at words like atonement. We've looked at at words uh, like baptism and incarnation. Today, I want us to look at one final word, and that's the word discipleship. Now, you will not find this term in the text of Scripture, but more than likely you'll find it in a heading or two throughout your Bible which are not inspired parts of the Scriptures. There's something that man has added to help categorize the different passages. But although this term, discipleship, does not appear in the Bible, the concept of discipleship does appear in the Bible. In fact, it's very present in the Great Commission. If you'll turn over to Matthew chapter 28, I want you to notice what Jesus says in verses 28, 29, and 30. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What I want you to notice in the Great Commission is that Jesus instructed believers to make disciples. That's the idea of discipleship. That's the concept of discipleship right there in the Great Commission. 
And Jesus goes on to indicate that making disciples is a two-step process. The first step in that process centers around baptism. It has to do with that baptizing instruction you see there in the Great Commission. And when you consider the baptizing instruction, it is focused on how one becomes a disciple. We talked about this just a couple of weeks ago. It's in the waters of baptism. That's when you come in contact with the grace of God that washes away your sins. And that is how you become a disciple. The second step in the disciple-making process, according to the Great Commission, has to do with the teaching instruction. Notice that Jesus instructed his disciples to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and then to teach. Teaching is the second component. And teaching follows baptism in the order of things. Isn't that fascinating? Sometimes we believe that before we can baptize someone, we have to teach them all things, but that's not the order Jesus gave. Now, there are some things that have to be taught in order for one to reach the point that they understand the need to be baptized. But the teaching them all things comes after baptism in Jesus' instructions. And the focus of the teaching instruction is on how one gains additional knowledge and training and thereby grows as a disciple. The baptizing instruction is focused on how one becomes a disciple. The teaching instruction is focused on how one grows as a disciple. And in my observation. The teaching aspect of the Great Commission is quite possibly the most neglected task of believers. I believe we often neglect to fulfill the teaching expectation of the Great Commission because we have made the reception of salvation through baptism our ultimate evangelistic objective. And the unintended consequence of neglecting to emphasize discipleship or disciple-making is that we can unintentionally promote a once-baptized, always-saved theology. And that is absolutely incongruent with the Bible. We enter a saved state when our sins are washed away by the blood of Jesus in the waters of baptism. However, Scripture makes it very clear that we can exit a saved state if we fail to remain faithful to God's will. This is apparent when you consider the implication of the preposition if. When that small two-letter word is attached to a phrase, it makes that phrase conditional. Salvation is frequently described in conditional terms by the presence of the preposition if in conjunction with salvation-esque terminology. In the Bible. For example, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, Paul said that you are reconciled in Christ's body if indeed you continue in the faith. The preposition if indicates that a a condition exists for maintaining one's reconciled state, and that condition is whether or not one continues in the faith. 
So Paul indicates that a failure to continue in the faith after being reconciled to God through the blood of Jesus would be a condition on which our state of reconciliation would be compromised. And if you go over to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 14, the author of Hebrews says, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The preposition if indicates that a condition exists for maintaining our share in Christ, and that condition is whether or not we hold our original confidence to the end, which is a reference to our steadfast belief in Jesus. So the author of Hebrews indicates that an abandonment or retraction of faith in Jesus would be a condition on which our share in Christ would be compromised. The whole point I'm making is that if you journey through the Bible, you'll discover that salvation is not permanent once received unless it is maintained. And we are completely in support of that when we are battling the once saved, always saved mentality. But the problem is we approach the Great Commission sometimes as if once baptized, always saved is the philosophy of it. We skip and forget this teaching them all things aspect of the Great Commission. And if we stop the disciple-making process after baptism, we are ignoring an integral part of the Great Commission and failing to equip ourselves or others with the knowledge needed to maintain salvation. And that becomes evident when we consider what a disciple really is and what a disciple is not. And that's going to be the focus of the rest of our time this morning because discipleship is this process of becoming a disciple. And we understand that you cannot become a disciple unless you first put on Christ in baptism. That's the first step. Now let's talk about the second step. The step that involves the teaching them all things aspect of the Great Commission. And we'll do that by considering what a disciple is and what a disciple is not. Let's start with the is not. A disciple is more than a convert. You see, a convert is one who turns from one way of life to another. Thus, the conversion refers to a spiritual change. That's what happens when you become a disciple. When you put on Christ in baptism, you become a disciple. And it starts with you being a convert. You're converting from one way of life to another. At least that's what Ephesians chapter 4 tells us. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 24, you'll read about how we are to put off the old self and put on the new self. That's conversion. And when we put off the old self and put on the new self, we are a new creation, as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 calls us. And the way in which we become a new creation is through baptism, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 and 27. This is the baptizing portion of the Great Commission. But what's so very interesting is that the Greek language used other words for a convert. We're focused on what a disciple is. And sometimes we limit a disciple to someone who's been converted. Someone who's been baptized. 
But a disciple is more than a convert because in the Greek language, there are a lot of other words. There are multiple words for a convent. In fact, the Greek, langu- the Greek words for a convert refer to either the first fruits of a harvest or something that has been newly planted. Paul will identify Epinetus as the first convert to Christ in Asia in Romans chapter 16 and verse 5. And the household of Stephanus as the first converts in Achaia in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 15. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul said that an elder must not be a recent convert. And in those passages, the word for convert is talking about someone who has either been newly planted or freshly harvested. That's not what the term disciple means. The Greek word for disciple refers to one who is a learner, a pupil, or an apprentice. In other words, becoming a disciple necessitates more than conversion. It necessitates spiritual growth. That's why Peter instructed us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-7 through 7, to make every effort to add to our faith, to add goodness Knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Implicit within these instructions is the expectation that we're going to add these characteristics to the faith we proclaimed when we were converted. This is about growth. And Peter said at the conclusion of this list that such characteristics must be added in order to keep us from being ineffective and unproductive. You can't stay where you're at when you're converted. You're expected to add. You're expected to grow. And this is emphasized in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 5, beginning around verse 12, Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews began comparing his readers to children due to their lack of spiritual growth. He said they still needed a milk diet when they should have been moving on to a diet of solid food. So he challenged them to grow up. And he said this in chapter 6 and verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. That's the expectation. Don't stay a convert. Grow, mature. That's the expectation. And the point is that becoming a disciple necessitates more than just conversion. It necessitates spiritual growth. And as a result, all disciples are converts, but it is possible that not all converts will become disciples. That's what I want you to understand this morning. All disciples are converts, but it is possible that not all converts will become disciples because discipleship is more than just conversion. And a disciple is more than a student. Now all this talk about spiritual growth and the association of the Greek term for disciple with being a learner or a pupil may lead you to the conclusion that a disciple is simply a student. And while learning is an essential part of being a disciple, we need to clarify that discipleship is not just about the transfer of information from a teacher to a student. See, the Greek language had a different verb for learning than it did for becoming a disciple. The Greek term for learning refers to the process of increasing one's knowledge, either by instruction or experience. The Greek term for becoming a disciple refers to adhering to one's teaching. 
The difference in terminology is important. A disciple is not just one who knows what his or her master taught. A disciple is one who does what his or her master taught. That's that's the difference. You can be a learner and fill your head with all kinds of knowledge. You can know every book, chapter, and verse. You can know everything that Jesus expects of you, but unless you're putting it into practice, you're not a disciple. And James emphasized this. If you go over to the book of James, chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, James says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Do you understand what James is saying? He draws this comparison to a mirror. Now, how many of you, when you got up this morning and got ready, looked into a mirror? Raise your hand. Those of you who didn't raise your hand, it's obvious. (laughs) We look into a mirror so that we can see if our hair is properly placed. We look to make sure there's no food in our teeth. We look to make sure that this isn't as bad as we think it is. And we do that. Regularly. But if you go up to a mirror and you see that your hair is all messed up and you don't do anything about it, what good was the mirror? If you go to the mirror and you notice a piece of spinach in your teeth and you don't do anything about it, what good was the mirror? What's the purpose of the mirror? It's to show you what you need to do. And James' points, James's point seems to be that Christians who are hearers only are really just forgetters because they're not doers. They're forgetting to act upon what they saw when they looked at their reflection. So James is criticizing the Christian who hears God's word but doesn't do God's word. And the thing is, James doesn't just call these individuals forgetters. He goes on to call them sinners in James chapter 4 and verse 17 because he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. See, here's, here's the point we're trying to make here. You can know what Jesus wants you to know and still not do what Jesus wants you to do. Knowing is not the same as doing. A student knows. A disciple does. And nowhere is this better communicated than in the parable of the Good Samaritan. 
I assume the majority of you are familiar with this parable. A guy gets jumped on his way from Jericho to Jerusalem. He gets beaten up, robbed, left for dead on the side of the road. A a couple of religious leaders, a priest and a Levite walk by. They do nothing. Finally, a guy who no one expects to be the hero of the story because of his ethnicity shows up and assists the man, bandages him up, escorts him to town, puts him in the care of an innkeeper and pays for his medical bills. And at the end of the parable, Jesus asked the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the correct answer was the one who showed him mercy. In other words, the one who did something about his situation. Jesus didn't end that parable by saying, go and think likewise, or go and feel likewise. He ended that parable by saying, go and do likewise. And the reason is because you don't really know something until you show something. Knowing is not the same as doing because doing demonstrates your knowledge. You see, you can't be a disciple without being a student. But you can be a student without being a disciple. That's the difference. You can have all the knowledge in the world. You can know what the Lord wants from your life. But if it's not manifesting itself in your your life, if it's not something you're acting upon, if it's not how you live, then you're not a disciple. You're just a student. And we're called to be more than a student. You see, what we are ultimately called to be, what a disciple really is, is a follower. Do you remember how Jesus called the first disciples? The redacted version of that account is in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1. The full account is in Luke chapter 5. Basically, Jesus encountered Peter, Andrew, James, and John on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. They had just had an unsuccessful night fishing. They're exhausted and they're hanging up the nets ready to go home. And Jesus instructs them to go back out there and cast their nets one more time. They reluctantly do so and then have this miraculous catch of fish all because of Jesus. And when they came to shore, Jesus said this in Mark chapter 1, verse 17, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And in all three accounts, we're told that they left everything and followed him. You know what's so interesting about that term for follow? It means to join one as a disciple or to become a disciple. And that means the terms disciple and follower are interchangeable. But this shouldn't come as a surprise to us because of things Jesus said. He often spoke of discipleship in terms of being a follower. For instance, in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 24, Jesus said to his disciples, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves 
and take up their cross and follow me. And in Luke chapter 14 and verse 27, which was part of our scripture reading, Jesus said, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, here's the thing. We, we don't really use the term disciple that often today. When we attempt to describe who we are as God's people, we tend to use the word Christian instead of disciple. But you know which identity came first? Disciple. It's in Acts chapter 11 and verse 26 where we're told that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now we hang our hat on that. The disciples were called Christians. Before they were Christians, what were they called? Disciples. You know why I think we don't like the term disciple? This is my conjecture. No scientific basis for this whatsoever. I think the reason we prefer the term Christian is not because of its appearance in Acts chapter 11, but because it doesn't carry with it any real responsibility. See, discipleship connotes commitment. Discipleship is all about following. If I claim to be a disciple, that means I'm an imitator of the one I follow. That means I have inherent responsibility. That is harder than just saying I'm a Christian. I'm kind of like some guy named Christ. See, the, you can be a Christian. You can be one wearing that name without really committing yourself to Jesus Christ. But you cannot be a disciple unless you are willing to sacrificially, continually, and intentionally follow Jesus. See, there are these three, these three guys who had the opportunity to become disciples in Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, verse 57 through 58, a man claimed he would follow Jesus wherever he went. However, as soon as Jesus informed him of the itinerant nature of his ministry through his declaration that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, that guy got cold feet. He apparently reneged on his bold proclamation because nothing is ever said about him again. Apparently, the uncomfortable and unpredictable lifestyle of a disciple was a deal breaker for him. So he never became a follower because he wasn't willing to make sacrifices that the original disciples made. Remember that? Peter, Andrew, James, and John left everything. They had to sacrifice to become a follower. What sacrifices have you made to follow Christ? If you want to go from being a Christian to being a disciple, what sacrifices do you need to make? What must be given up so that you truly follow Jesus? If we continue on in this same passage... We come to another guy who Jesus invited to follow him in verses 59 and 60 of Luke 9. This guy immediately requested for time to first go and bury his father. That, that seems like a reasonable request. And Jesus' response was, leave the dead to bury their own dead. 
but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And that seems really insensitive. But the text doesn't actually say whether or not the father had passed away. In fact, the phrase used by this man was a common Near Eastern figure of speech that referred to a son's responsibility to help his father in the family business until the father died and the inheritance was distributed. In other words, it's quite possible this guy was saying, well, I've got to stay home and help my dad until he passes away, and then I'll accept your invitation. That could be years. That could be decades. In other words, this individual was really saying, I'll follow you after I've fulfilled all my other obligations. See, this guy wasn't ready for the long-term commitment. This guy wasn't ready to be a continuous disciple. When you make that decision to become a disciple, you're making a lifelong decision. You're making the most important decision of your entire life. You're making a decision that from this day forward, I'm going to follow Jesus. Full commitment to him permanently. How many of us bounce in and out of that permanent disciple category? How many of us find being a disciple a matter of convenience? I'll be a disciple now at this point in my life when things are really difficult and I need God. But as soon as things get easy, I don't have to be a follower right now. I can take a break from being a follower. Or when we don't like some of the expectations, I'm going to stop being a follower because I don't want to have to do that. I'll be a follower when it involves things that I'm okay with. See, being a disciple is a long-term, continual decision, not a temporary one. And then if you look at verses 61 and 62, we have another individual, a third guy that Jesus, that, excuse me, that offered to follow Jesus, but on the condition that he could first say farewell to his family. And that seems like another reasonable request that Jesus denied. Jesus denied it saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus' statement is a reference to the singular focus that a farmer must have when operating a plow in order to prevent his field from having crooked rows. And his point is that discipleship necessitates that same undivided focus. The fact that this guy wanted to return home after making this offer seems to indicate some reluctance to take the, disi- to, some reluctance to take the decisive step, as one commentator noted. And so this individual lacked the intentionality that the original disciples displayed. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, as soon as the invitation to follow was offered, they left. No hesitation. Completely devoted to Jesus. See, a disciple is much more than we sometimes give it credit. A disciple is a true follower, one whose entire life is centered around who Jesus is. 
Each of these individuals had the opportunity to become a disciple, and they squandered it because they weren't willing to follow. And this morning, I simply want to ask you this. Are you just a convert? A student? Or are you a disciple? Because there is a difference. And remember this. Jesus told us that being a disciple was going to be difficult. In Matthew chapter 7, he said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many, but the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And just a few verses later, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Are you on the straight and narrow? Are you one of the few? Are you a follower? Because that's who we're called to be, and that's what discipleship is all about. This morning, if you're not truly a follower, we invite you to come. If you need to put on Christ in baptism to become a disciple, or if you need to take that step to transition from a convert or to transition from a student and become truly a disciple, then we invite you to come while together we